Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the People, Power, Politics podcast, brought to you by CEDA, the Centre for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation at the University of Birmingham. Hi, my name is Petra Alderman and I am a research fellow at CEDA. I am going to be your host for this episode of the People Power Politics podcast. I am very excited to welcome Rory Cormack as our guest for this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Rory. Thanks very much. Rory Cormack is a professor of international relations at the University of Nottingham. He specializes in secret intelligence and covert action. Now, in this episode, we are going to talk about Rory's recent book called How to Stage a Coup and 10 Other Lessons from the World of Secret Statecraft. Um, what an amazing title, by the way. Um, the book was published in 2022 by Atlantic Books and is written in a very accessible format with plenty of interesting examples and anecdotes from the world of covert action and secret statecraft. But before we delve deep into the actual content of the book, I am very interested to know, Rory, what inspired you to write this book and how can one go about studying the world of covert action and secret statecraft? Are not most of these activities and operations actually based on obfuscation and secrecy? They are, but that's half the fun. It's a great, it's a great challenge. This whole world is just so fascinating and so mythologized and widely misunderstood, uh, but it's also a core part of international relations. You know, we have lots of people studying war, we have lots of people studying peace, and we have fewer people studying the grey area in between, even though states have been engaging in these types of activities for as long as states have existed. The UK has been doing it since before the UK even existed. Queen Elizabeth I was uh, was subverting the Low Countries and Philip of Spain 500 years ago. Um, so this is, a, this is an important part of international relations. And I wrote the book now because for something supposedly secret, it's been in the news a lot over the last decade. I mean, think back to the Russian little green men, as they were called during the annexation of Crimea back in 2014. Uh, two years later, 2016 um, presidential election in the United States and all of the talk around Russian uh, electoral interference. And it's been so on and so forth. Assassination attempts of, of Sergei Skripal in, in Salisbury in 2018. And there have been lots of examples uh, on the European continent as well of allegations of, again, Russia being involved in electoral interference, covertly funding political parties. The Chinese have been accused of this in Australia, New Zealand, Canada have just opened their own inquiry into foreign interference. So this, for something secret, this is very widely discussed. And I wanted to try as best as I could as an outsider to, to get to the bottom of it. What are states doing? Why are they doing it? How does it work? Does it work? Is it successful? It is difficult to find some of this stuff out for obvious reasons, but there's much more out there than I think people realise. When I talk to you know, former practitioners and I tell them something I've read in the archives, look at me aghast. That's been released? <laughs> I say, yes, it has. And a lot of covert action these days is increasingly, weirdly almost, open. It's like, the deniability is, is, is what we call implausible uh, for, for various reasons which we can get onto later if you like. But it means that the states don't admit it, they deny it, but it's kind of obvious. And the examples of you know, electoral interference and fake news and disinformation, just you know, some recent, recent examples. So it is there. It's there if you're, if you're willing to look for it. And, and I would argue there's certainly more than enough out there to make some robust conclusions. 
That's great. And I think what, what is quite interesting as well, you are coming to this topic as somebody working in the sphere of international relations. But as you talk, I mean, this is so very relevant to domestic politics as well and people studying politics and also our core themes in CEDA are related to elections, democracy, accountability and representation. And very much seems that what you've just been talking about is so intrinsically linked with all these four core themes that we, we cannot probably talk about domestic politics politics without actually talking about this kind of meddling or interference of foreign states in what is happening in our countries and at home. But when we talk about secret statecraft and covert action, I think many people's expectations, <laughs> including my own, have been greatly influenced by the James Bond movies. And you mentioned that in your own book, there is this popular cult that's been built up around this. And I wonder how different is actually this popular culture imagery from the real world of covert action and secret statecraft? The short answer is, unsurprisingly, very different uh, from the, the Hollywood James Bond version of all this kind of thing. It's there's a lot more lawyers, I think, is the first thing to say. When democracy thinks about engaging in some of these things, you know, the, the amount of, of layers of bureaucracy and, and legal hoops to, to jump through, which are obviously not represented in James Bond because they are mundane and probably a bit boring, but they are also crucially important for when democracies want to engage in stuff that is secret and, and not transparent. But then there are occasional times when, when, when fact and fiction start to intertwine. There was one lovely example when, in the 1960s, when the head of the CIA had just read the most recent James Bond book. And it went to his, his staff and he started reading off all these ridiculous gadgets that James Bond had. And when he stood up and said, make them for me. I, I want this. I want this. Uh, and occasionally you see Bond pop up in the British history uh, archives as well. There was a Labour Foreign Secretary, I think, again, mid-1960s. He was saying, we can't do this James Bond scheme. So it, 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 it pops up every, every, every now and again, but they're obviously very different. There's no oversight in James Bond either. Um, there's no parliamentary committees making sure that, uh, that things aren't going, going awry, which again, was not particularly visually exciting, I think, on a, on a screen. But that, that said, I think that there some of the stories in real life can actually end up being far more bizarre and ridiculous than the, the craziest stuff that scriptwriters will probably you know leave on the cutting room floor because it's so stupid. I'll give you one quick example, my favourite one, which is just, just nuts, is um, 1961, I think. The CIA came up with this plan to get rid of Fidel Castro in Cuba. And the plan was called Illumination by Elimination. And what they wanted to do was stage fake the second coming of Jesus Christ. And they thought that if they did this, it would inspire Cubans to rise up against the godless communists. And they were going to set out flares to be like shooting stars and all sorts of stuff. Unsurprisingly, this this did not get put into, into action. But I mean, if a James Bond writer came up with that, he probably laughed off the set. Uh, so there are plenty of real life bizarre escapades. Yeah, and I should mention that obviously your book is full of these kind of anecdotes that sometimes really makes you wonder, you know, how could actually people come up with these things and how could they even be considered? 
But I think this leads me to a question of, you know, when do actually states resort to covert action and how do they choose which action to use and when? Because it, it very much seems that, you know, there are so many other options to use. You've mentioned that before, peaceful mechanisms like, you know, diplomacy, soft power and all these other things, then maybe more overt, aggressive um, reactions such as waging wars or, or some kind of open military aggression or even funding of aggressors abroad. So when do states feel like covert action is the way to go? They often use it in conjunction with other tools of statecraft. I mean, we often think of covert action as it's often called the, the third force, but I think it's a, a misnomer because a state, when they're engaging in this kind of activity, wouldn't stop doing I don't know, economic sanctions and turn to covert regime change as an either or. You know, they, they'll squeeze publicly in diplomacy, they'll squeeze in sanctions, and then they might also do the, the covert stuff. And they do it because they want it to be a force multiplier. They wanted to make the, the overt tools of statecraft work that, that bit harder. So in diplomacy, for example, if you're if you are negotiating nuclear power with the Iranians which is an open dialogue, but the diplomacy is stalling slightly, then somebody may allegedly think it's a good idea to launch a cyber attack against the nuclear program and sabotage this kind of thing. Uh, because it would create pressure on, as the argument would go, it would create pressure on the Iranian regime and may help the negotiations uh, a little bit. So it's about, yeah, it's about bolstering things. And there are various costs to going too overtly. So for example, uh, if going to war very expensive, covert action is cheaper. Um, there might be political costs involved. If you are going to be accused of near-imperial meddling in the domestic affairs of a Middle Eastern, African, Global South country, then you might want to do it covertly instead. The main reason when it fails, though, is because prime ministers and presidents see it as a silver bullet and they mm -hmm. do it because they think it's an easy option. That's the main problem. When if a prime minister or president thinks, uh, I've got this big problem, I can't do it openly, I can't just go and bomb somebody, so I'm going to covertly you know, use, use special forces, use intelligence to, to fix it. Mm -hmm. That normally ends in tears. From reading your book, you, you sort of identify 11 different types of covert action, and these range from things like assassinations and propaganda and influence operations. You just mentioned cyber attacks. Meddling in foreign elections was something that you picked um, at the beginning, even staging military coups. And I'm thinking many of these do not sound entirely new. They've been used for decades, even centuries in one form and an another. But yet many times with the problems and issues that we are dealing today, they kind of feel like they are slightly different than what they used to be 10, 20 years ago, even, you know, 50, 100 years ago. So is this covert action and what is happening these days, is it somehow different qualitatively or substantively than what it used to be a few years and decades ago? The fundamental principles uh, have not changed in centuries. We'll take propaganda, for example. The fundamental principles of propaganda are to find uh, an issue which resonates with a domestic audience, to find cleavages in society and to polarise them, to help not create, because propaganda doesn't create these issues, but it finds them and it accentuates them. And states have been doing that for so long. You know, people talk now about hostile states for example, Russia, China, spreading, as we call it now, fake news in Western democracies and causing Brexit or causing Trump or whatever, whatever it might be. These underlying tensions already 
exist in our society. So it's about finding these things and, and amplifying them is, is what propaganda's always always done. But it used to be quite slow. It used to, it used to be an art form. It was it's, mm. it's quite impressive actually uh, when you look at forgeries from fifty years ago. And um, what they were doing was they would literally track down the paper used. Uh, in that particular target country, so it would survive the analysis. They would literally find the right staple. What brand of staples do the East Germans use or whomever? And then we'll have to get it and use it. So if they're going to forge East German documents uh, in order to be in order to be credible, and these things could take six nine months. Uh, it's very very painstaking. So the principles have stayed the same, but the big change is we see the speed and the scale and the scope. So this this art form, this arcane forgery, now it's just troll farms and spamming and just seeing what sticks. And there's a few reasons for that. One of them is obviously the uh, technological advancements and the internet, probably the main one. But it's also led to fragmentation of the media. So in the old days, you could buy a news agency or covertly establish your own news agency in a target country. And then you've kind of got control of a lot of newspapers if they're all getting the articles from the same place. If you bribe a radio station chief to take your articles, which states did in the Cold War, you've got almost an entire population as a captive listener. Now, fast forward now, and everyone's getting their news from a million different sources. And it's so much more difficult to construct a narrative and then get it to gain traction amongst your target again amongst your target audience so we, that's why i think we see just lots of spamming and stuff coming from all sides and the, the consequence of this is i think it's less about states trying to build up a narrative being great positive narrative russia are the good guys china are the good guys whatever um, and it's more about spreading confusion and cynicism and just if we can't build up our own narrative in a target country we will say we i'm not, not me, me or even the uk or anyone um, but uh, we will try to erode trust. We will try to induce cynicism and make people think, oh, everyone's lying. And we'll put out a million different lines and they're completely contradictory. And we don't expect anybody to believe all of them because you can't, because they are contradictory. But what we can do is, is people to be confused. And confusion breeds cynicism and cynicism breeds lack of trust in institutions, you know, as, as you and your listeners know much more, more than I do. And that then starts to lead to democratic decay and all these kind of problems and that, I think, is, is one of the main challenges of, of 21st century covert action is this, the scope, the scale, the speed of all this stuff just gradually chipping away at authority and trust in democratic institutions, the sanctity of elections, of the, the so-called mainstream media that people, um, people use in a derisory manner. And the other thing I was going to say was we think of cyber as an entirely new realm of mm. covert action. Uh, and obviously the technology is, is new. But a lot of this stuff, again, uses the same fundamental principles. So a lot of cyber attacks, they are sabotaged by, by other means. And states have been sabotaging their opponents since ancient Greece, ancient Rome. And so it's the same, you know, same principle, different technology. From what you were talking about, the, the implications for democracy, obviously, that's a big topic that we are interested in here at CEDA. But I was kind of wondering, especially if we maybe zoom in a little bit on the effects this might have, let's say, in regard to elections, because that's been something that's been discussed quite extensively, especially following the 2016 US election. And from what you were saying, I got a sense or a feeling that the use of this covert action, although it is now done on a much larger scale, is still something that's 
only gradual. So you can't in some ways expect that things would happen overnight. Um, again, probably with the US um, presidential elections, you can't really say what was already there in terms of the genuine support for Trump that was already there before any kind of interference from, let's say, Russia. But, you know, I kind of wonder how much of a threat, a realistic threat, you know, how big this is a problem for contemporary democracies. And how much is this just maybe a contributing factor to the larger trends that are already there and happening domestically, as you said, in terms of polarization and maybe some kind of dissatisfaction with some of the basic tenets of democracy and how it's it hasn't maybe delivered what people were expecting or hoping for that's why it's so hard to counter because it is it's nebulous as a concept it's it's quite elusive insofar as it exists by nudging along existing forces so it's really hard to isolate it and say this bit was caused by putin or whoever but i think that it is a contributing factor we, we can't blame all of our ills on hostile states, covert actions, or we can't blame all of the problems and the lack of trust, the disillusionment the Western people seem to have in democracy at the moment. We can't blame that on um, on covert actions being done by the hostile states and authoritarian states. It's often, you know, we, people see it as an easy answer. I think people think, oh, you know, let's blame Putin for Donald Trump, because it's easier to say it was those bad guys than to say, actually, there are some long-standing problems and divisions and discontentment that people have. It's easier to blame someone else and look at our own problems and, and failings. And I think the same goes for, for Brexit. You know, there are lots of people argue that Russia was behind it. And obviously, I'm not privy to any classified information. Uh, I, would be, I would be very uh, surprised if Russia did not engage in attempts to um, shape opinion around around the Brexit referendum. Um, but they didn't cause it. These feelings, these this, this discontents, these divisions are long-standing. So what we see is a successful covert action doesn't create this stuff. And it can't. It's too, it's too big an ask. A successful covert action preys on the existing divisions in society, the existing disillusionment within society. And then it's so hard to defend because then we counter the covert action and not the internal divisions. And I think it does create a, a serious problem for democracy because we think about covert action often in terms of regime change. We think about mm. the big bangs. We think about electoral interference coups and we think about assassinations and secret wars because you know, they're easy to get our heads around and they are big and visible and quite easy to write journalistic pieces about them. But 99% of covert action isn't that. It's the mm. slow, steady drip drip, drip of subversion. It's covert political influence in our institutions. It's, you know, and it borders the line between legitimate and illegitimate, between, between bribery and lobbying. And there are loopholes and they, ex they exploit legal loopholes. They exploit internal divisions. And that is where the problem lies. But it's, it's insidious and it's so difficult to, to get to grips with it. It's slow, it's steady, and that's the, that's the threat to democracy. It's not going to come from, you know, Russia, whoever, sponsoring a coup against the UK. It's not going to come from somebody overturning one of our elections. It's this gradual thing within the existing parameters of our political system and, and you know, shaping the debate, but also making us lose a bit of trust in, in democracy and think, oh, they're all as bad as each other. That's the goal. And it's tough. Yeah. 
This actually reminds me of some of the reports that I've um, they've been reported on not that long ago, and it was about the British politicians as well, and certain political parties being funded by Russian money. And I think you're right; it does make you feel, or, or you know, at the level of population, it, it does make you wonder, and you feel like, mm, okay, this sounds a bit shady. This doesn't really sound very good. And then you start feeling like, has there been a level of interference? What has happened? You start, as you said, losing a bit of trust in these key players within the democratic systems but even worse so probably then by proxy you start losing trust in the system itself and that's i think as you said is is the the problem that maybe you don't need a direct attack on the system you just need to undermine trust in some of the key institutions or players within that system and it slowly bit by bit starts undermining the entire system i mean so far we have talked about mostly covert action and this world of secret statecraft in response to threat to democracy that comes from, let's say, more authoritarian states. But I think it's important also acknowledge that, as you mentioned, you know, the, the Western countries and the democratic countries as well themselves use covert action to influence what's happening in other parts of the world. And oftentimes, and I think you do mention this as one of the arguments um, in the book that these democracies typically use is like there is some kind of imminent threat or there's some kind of danger to democracy or to the country or national interest. But oftentimes these don't necessarily seem like very solid reasons or arguments. And I feel like oftentimes we do come across some reports where economic interest comes to the fore and there's that question well is it really for democracy or is it more so for let's say oil or keeping you know access to particular uh, geographical areas because of let's say natural riches or some kind of you know geopolitical importance how perhaps this covert action on part of these western countries can also maybe contribute to the undermining of democracy in terms of its moral values and moral standing vis-a-vis the more authoritarian regimes because I, th- I feel with some of these authoritarian regimes you know they do not necessarily try to put any kind of moral value on these things you know if it comes to just say yeah we've done it or you know no we haven't done it but you know they don't try to sugarcoat it as much it's a lot more clear-cut in those cases but how about democracies meddling in other countries affairs and trying to instigate sometimes even regime change Lots of countries, you're right, do engage in this across, you know, across the spectrum, and it's important to. I think it's important to acknowledge that it's not. It's not something that only you know, Russia and China does. America, famously, the CIA is famously associated with co-action. Britain has a very long history. The French were doing loads of it, particularly in, um, in Francophone Africa in the latter half of the 20th century. Um, so you're completely right. States, uh, democratic states, doing do engage in it. An important point is to say that covert action, I don't think, is inherently good or bad. I think it's a a tool of statecraft and it can be used for good and it can be used for bad or it can be used well and it can be used badly. But it is ultimately a a, a tool. So I don't want to go down the kind of route of moral relativism where anyone who uses it is they're all all as bad as each other, I think, because I genuinely don't think that is the case. Um, but it does open up this challenge of hypocrisy um, around um, Western states when they do engage in this. And I think my argument might be slightly un- unpopular, but I think that covert action can be compatible with liberal democracy if the uh, you know, the capabilities are acknowledged and avowed, not the operations, but we need to know that our democracy 
has the capability to do X, Y, or Z. And then we mm. as a public can have that debate and go, goodness me, we should not have that capability. I think that the policy, which is promote, which is being used to promote, needs to be avowed and debated publicly. The vast majority of covert actions, whether democratically used or used by authoritarian states, they don't promote secret foreign policy. They are a way to, as you mentioned earlier, support and develop openly declared policy. And if, if the public are aware and support democratically that avowed policy, and this is just another tool to, to do it, that I think it can be compatible with, with liberal democracy. Does it erode democracy more widely around the world? Once it comes out, and these things always end up coming out, or, or they can be exaggerated and, and hyped up again into the world of you know, plots and conspiracies and Brits and the Americans behind everything. That can lead to you know, a loss of trust in people who go around preaching the importance of democracy. I think when it turns out that certain, the, the, the democratic states have undermined democracy covertly around the world, which they have, matter of historical record, then that can erode trust. Um, and it also erodes democracy, of course, as well. On another level, it bleeds plots and paranoia and conspiracies. I and mean, there's a lot of real conspiracies, but the knowledge that states have done this leads to more plots, more paranoia, more, more, more conspiracy theories, which just, again, just erodes, erodes trust. It, the, the, the Russians and the Chinese can then say, you know, America is just as bad as everyone else. You know, people will, will go along with that. It's not just democracy, it's eroding of trust in the, the liberal order ideal. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it's almost, almost like the perception of covert action and the, the management of the narratives around it are actually almost as important, if not more important, than what has actually happened. But you're right. I mean, as a matter of fact, there are occasions when um, democracy was, was stymied. Although some of those ones, they, they, get, they do get exaggerated a little bit. I mean, the most famous one is 1953 coup in Iran when... Uh, US and UK covertly overthrew, got rid of the nationalist prime minister Mossadegh uh, for oil reasons, essentially. Critics, and I'm not going to defend this operation, uh, obviously, um, but critics say he was a democratically elected prime minister and it messed up Iranian democracy. Now, it probably did mess up um, Iranian democracy, but he wasn't democratically elected as a prime minister. He was appointed by the Shah. There's a quite a big difference there. So again, it's the, it's the narrative of how we, how we talk about these things. Uh, but that you know, they, they, they linger on for decades and decades and decades, um, and they do uh, risk having corrosive implications for democracy. As you were talking, I was also thinking about, and um, we can see these narratives gaining traction as well. And I think maybe there is a connection with what you've just been talking about, about democracies, obviously, going about these covert action, and when it actually comes into the light, eventually it causes and feeds into a lot of paranoia and and can be used maybe also as a convenient tool in some countries by maybe more autocratizing figures where they try to discredit certain pro-democracy movements as being sponsored by um, the US or being sponsored by the UK and try to divest kind of homegrown desires and interests for promotion of democracy as something that's foreign and that's been kind of instigated by this hidden hand as you so often describe in your book. So I feel like in, in many ways, there are probably ways of how this can be misused then against democracy per se. Um, and I think in this day and age when we are often concerned about the state of global democracy, perhaps things like this are not very helpful if they do happen. Because as you said, these narratives are very powerful and they can really feed into this paranoia or um, be used to, to discredit genuine democratic actors in countries around the world. Now, I know that you've sort of said 
earlier during our discussion that it is quite difficult to defend against um, some of this covert action. But do you see any possible ways of how we could try to defend democracy against um, some of these negative effects that are really linked with, with covert action, whether the actual action itself or some of the narratives that can be associated with it or can be built around it and then used to discredit people and actors in democratic or even democratizing settings. Yeah, we need to build resilience in our society against this stuff. And as we've been discussing, the vast majority of covert action, particularly successful covert action, exploits the existing problems, division and disillusionment. Um, so what we need to do, and it's not a very politically sexy answer, um, is to look at ourselves and to s try and manage some of those internal cleavages. And obviously, we don't live in a utopia where gonna, there's going to be no difficult disagreement. It wouldn't even be a utopia. Um, we need political disagreement. But we, we can reduce the toxicity around which we're having these political disagreements. You know, that, that, that's on us. That's on, our, that's on our media. We don't have to have front pages saying enemies of the people talking about high court judges or whatever it was. That's on us. And that stuff feeds into polarization. It feeds into toxicity. And it is that toxicity which is exploited by hostile states. So the best way to defend against that, I mean, we, we can do other cleverer things like doing dis disruption operations uh, against the servers of hostile states that are spreading disinformation. And we can do that. I think they've said they're doing that. And frankly, we should be doing that. But these things are you know, short-term fixes. It's like, like whack-a-mole. Take down one server and another one will pop up. The long-term thing is to reduce the toxicity of our own physical climate, is to increase media literacy amongst everybody, particularly young people at school coming, coming through for the next generations, is to you know stop banging on about Mickey Mouse degrees at universities. When a media studies is the is the one they always bring out, oh, media studies is a Mickey Mouse degree. No, our, our democracy is going to rise and fall based on the quality of people's ability to understand where their sources are coming from. So frankly, it's an incredibly important degree. So I think it's about building civil society, uh, increasing, increasing resilience, and just trying to look at our own divisions and our own problems, because all of these things are exploited by hostile actors. So we need to take on the hostile actors uh, in a proportionate manner. We also most fundamentally need to get our own house in order. Yeah, and I think that's a very good and, and very important point in terms of actually focusing rather than shifting always the blame onto the external other, as you mentioned before, to try and really look inside and, and try and see where the problems originate from and provide some kind of solutions. Because what we discussed before in terms of Brexit referendum or the election of, of Trump as the US president, these things could have happened and would have happened even without any kind of interference because as you said the polarization the toxicity was already there so I really like that assessment and I think that that's a very powerful message and even though we are talking about something that's you know maybe something that's happening between states in terms of international relations I think the solutions really need to be looked at internally so in the realm of domestic politics 
Thank you very much, Rory, for joining the People Power Politics podcast and for talking to us about your book and the exciting world of a covert action and secret statecraft, together with the not-so-nice implications for the global state of democracy. But I'm glad that we managed to finish on a little bit of a more positive note in terms of at least offering some kind of solutions um, to these problems. Now, if you would like to learn more about Rory's book, follow the links in this episode description. That will take you to the page where you can find more details on the book. This is it from us for now. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'm Petra Alderman, Research Fellow at CEDA and the host of this People Power Politics podcast episode. I have been talking to Rory Cormack, who is a Professor of International Relations at the University of Nottingham. Thank you for listening to the People Power Politics podcast, brought to you by CEDA, the Centre for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation at the University of Birmingham. To learn more about our centre and the exciting work we do on these issues around the world, please follow us on Twitter at at CEDA underscore BHAM and visit our website using the link in the podcast description.